Praise God. I know that's right. No matter how hard it gets. Thanks for calling home for me. Well, everyone, welcome back to Hope and Maintenance. <laughs> it's been some time since mm-hmm. I've seen y'all. Really? <laughs> okay. What is that? <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Hey, again. It's us again. Was that Chili's voice? Yeah. That? No, no T-Boss. T-Boss. Mm-hmm. It's us again. And hey, everybody. Yeah, man. Maintenance check. How was you guys' <laughs> Last day? 12 hours. Yeah. Um, you go first. Okay. You go first. Um, okay. How am I? I'm good. I feel good. I set a goal that I did not, um, accomplish. Is that what we can say? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and I shared it with, um, Lene and Sim oh. yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, but sorry, we, we fall down, but we get up. Praise God. And so I think, um, we, at, at this point, Charlie's <laughs> Angels. Um, so yeah, this kind of like I guess like yeah, handling that mm-hmm. was consumed my morning. Mm-hmm. Just kind of like not judging myself too harshly, but also holding myself accountable mm-hmm. and like just getting back to the good foot of it all. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm still not eating enough, which eating is just a chore. Good it God is. Almighty! And like this, you know, the weight gain of it all, and trying to make sure I'm getting all my calories and all the things. So that's a, a chore, but um, it's a short week for me because I'm traveling at the end of the week. But so you know, mm-hmm. today was good and cute and all the things. I love that. I yeah, love that. for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm still not certain you want to do this weight gain thing. I, I know you want to, but do you want to? No further questions. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, it's your turn. To be fair, eating is a chore, so I get it. It is. Um, Because we could say the same about me wanting to lose weight. Do I want to? The way that I had, like, five carbs today. Mm -hmm. Um, hmm. But the last couple hours have (laughs) been um, great. Um, I shared with Lene earlier that I stubbed my toe very dramatically, (laughs) um, fell on the ground in pain, screamed, and... My daughter instantly started crying. My son stretched his body over mine and begun crying as well. Mm. I said, not only is this beautiful, but these dramatic people are mine. <laughs> they, they're me. Like, they're small versions of me. Tristan was beside himself. He said, Mom, I was so scared and just sad. Like, I've never seen you be like this before. And I'm like... Wow, look at me being strong mm. for most of their lives. Oh, wow. Um, that's, and that's a lot. That kid is seven? <laughs> He's about to be seven this year. Yeah. So, yes. Um, it was really beautiful. So, I'm maintaining. I'm just, you know, being a mom, being a person. And um, day two of being on time. Word. Not oh, even being right. on, Because to be early is to be on know, time. Yeah. To be on time is to be late. late. And, and to, to be, be late, late is to, I can't say that part because everybody says it different. Okay. I don't even know that part. What's the, what's the options? I to learned that in my sorority. So. Oh, what, what is that? To be late is to, you know, it's just not good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I didn't even hear what you were saying. I just have heard it to be late is unacceptable. Oh, okay. Got but, it. Um, yeah. I mean, we all be late. It, it be that way sometimes. But, um, 
Nah, man, I'm not going to hold you. I broke down and cried this morning. Mm. I broke down and cried. We were talking last episode about, um, and just for reference to the people listening, we recorded these two episodes back to back. Usually they'll be week to week. But we talked about Ralph Yarl last episode, the 16-year-old boy who went to go get his brother and sister or his twin siblings. I don't, I'm not sure about mm who they are, what their names are, and he was shot, he was shot twice. Mm-hmm. And the thing about it is, I'm reading through these articles, literally being strategic about picking out information for my parking lot, because I've decided that's what I want to talk about on Friday. Mm-hmm. And that's how I do the news. I'm methodic about it, so I'm not attached to it emotionally. And I could feel myself shielding myself from getting emotional as I read the details, and I recognize that I am that way because I am socialized to expect black boys to die. And, Oof. you know, I started writing my journal, started writing a piece about it, but like today might be the first time that I cried about a black boy, mm. all the black boys that we've had in the news, because I'm not only socialized to expect that, but I am, I fortified the inner parts of my brain to go into action mode, to go into war mode, to arm myself with information, but what does information do when these things keep happening? Mm -hmm. Education doesn't save everybody. So it was rough for me, and the part that really took me down was figuring out who came to help him, because you really think about that. You think about the action, you think about how what he did didn't deserve this, and what the assailant did that was unmitigated, but this boy, even after having been shot in the head, was able to go to three different neighbors' homes and ask for help. That's a lot. And we don't know if those neighbors were home. We don't know anything. We're on the service. It feels like he asked three different people for help and no one helped him. Some neighbor whose door he didn't even knock on heard him screaming for help. I guess the last scream for help because by the time he got out the front door, he was in the driveway and he was helping him. And then someone came and assisted that white man in helping this black boy. So again, we don't know who heard what and when and what prompted them to get out the house and do something about it. But what it feels like is we had enough compassion once someone else showed compassion. And I wonder, was that compassion for the boy on the ground or for the man who got out of his way to help him? Mm. There's more that they're able to identify with with this white man wanting to help someone than this black boy being on the ground because when he was by himself, nobody came. Mm Mm-hmm. So that was really emotional for me. And, you know, we have an interesting topic today. It is still tough. It is still deep. And I wanted this space to be a balance. And we're going to have to figure that piece out. You know, we're going to have to figure that we'll piece get there. out. Mm-hmm. We definitely will. So, yeah. I did want to say to what you said, um, I remember, so I'm from South Bronx. Mm-hmm. I remember when anything traumatic would happen, how we would crowd around. And it's interesting to me in now living in the suburbs, and I don't know the area that this happened, but it is just interesting to me that in predominantly white neighborhoods, now that I'm just in a, a little bit of a different space, that's not what happens when traumatic things happen. Like, it, it's almost like outside is a ghost town. Like, people aren't quick to rush to say, does anybody need help? Oh, my God, what happened? Like, everybody kind of stays back. That connects to... I forget what it's, it's not just mentality. Oh, it's the way cultures are essentially, but there's a specific word that's escaping my mind right now. But Western cultures 
our individualistic societies and Eastern, our collective mm. societies. And that's why a lot of Indian families, African families, um, Asian families have a lot of the same experiences as far as what their parents' expectations of them are and how their choices, once they become adults, should lean back into how it can help the family and the community be stronger. That is how a lot of those different cultures are able to have these towns that are saturated in their identity and culture because they invest so much back into it. And what you speak of is this individualism of protecting what's what's immediately mine right here and not really a com communal sense of things. I was thinking about that too, but I want to do a little bit more writing about that as I figure out my ideas. But, you know, that's me for mm -hmm. this week and you know it'll get better hopefully prayerfully i'm still praying for a public display of affection mm. you know mm -hmm. anyway let's get into the uh niggas online all right so <laughs> we just had a conversation about oh jonathan and we stand corrected because mm -hmm. we talked about how he may get away with the things and it's looking like that might not be the case work the girl mm -hmm. said no the girl said no. Um, it's looking like his management has dropped him, and Marvel may indeed be recasting. Marvel, I gave you my recommendations. I do expect some type of check <laughs> and or royalties should one of my recommendations make it to the big screen. Amen. Hallelujah. And that's all great. That's all fine and dandy. We're still getting developments there. But of course, you know, also hinting back to the conversation we had about accountability, we want to bring so many other people into the conversation and it's warranted. Um, there are a lot of people out there being a little bit crazy. Before I guess we talk about the other people, there was one tweet in particular that I think we should discuss. And the neighborhood publicist says that Jonathan Majors completely ruined Creed momentum. It's not about the movie, but let him finish his thought. David Cho messing up stuff for beef. I don't know who David Cho is. I don't know what beef is, but I guess it's the same. A relationship, the moral of the story is stop giving abusive men passes because they take everybody down with them. We are living in a day, in a new day, folks. People will pull their support. And this tweet brought in conversations about Ezra Miller. Mm -hmm. Ezra Miller plays The Flash in DC Comics, The Justice League, and he's been doing some crazy things. Do we know what Ezra Miller's been doing? Yes. So he strangled a woman in public. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And some other heinous things after that, but it seems like he kind of like went in the dark for a little while, mm -hmm. then came back and started making movies like it was nothing. Mm. Um, I believe there was also some allegations of him participating in sexual misconduct as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. Um and it seems like it's continuing today. Mm. Yeah, I definitely think there's a double standard. But like I said the other day, two things can be true. Two things can be true. But I wonder, where do we reconcile the fact that human beings are capable of doing bad things, having bad moments, um, but black people being more quickly held accountable than white people because in this conversation about whoever David Cho is, whoever Ezra Miller is, there's also Josh Brolin who um, had a domestic dispute with his wife or history of domestic violence with his wife. And these are people who continue to make money, Jeremy Renner. And that's unfortunate. I just found out about that news and I just saw his name on the Disney Plus 
whole like console mm-hmm. because he has mm-hmm. his own show now. Mm-hmm. Um, but reports show that in 2019, his ex-wife claimed that he put a gun in his mouth and threatened to kill her. So it's a lot going on. And so the question is, we talked about it a little bit last episode. Mm-hmm. Are we seeing these people get an opportunity to rehabilitate and then come back? Or does it just look like it's swept under the rug? Well, we spoke about this on FemTime. I'm not sure if we spoke about it live on FemTime or if it was like an after discussion that happened. But I do remember we talked about Kanye, right? And mm-hmm. the way that our communities kind of don't cover each other like how when white people are doing things that are inappropriate or just not okay they kind of cover that person and you don't hear a bunch of news about it you don't hear people talking about it kind of like goes away um whereas black people um we're more likely to have these open discussions on forums with each other but i appreciate that at the beginning of this conversation you spoke about the difference between our cultures and how Mm -hmm. we handle things um And it's unfortunate because maybe sometimes the way we handle things, it contributes to our demise rather than um, being, you know, something that helps us constructively. So I just say that to say, like, with these topics, some of these things, like you said, you've never heard of this. Mm, Yeah. But these are very popular people, and I'm referring to Jeremy Renner and Josh Brolin. But when it came to Jonathan Majors, it wasn't a day that passed before we all knew what was going on and we were speaking about it. And now in less than two weeks, he's done. I've said this a number of times in a number of places, but I think in the black community, especially, and not any fault of our own, like literally not any fault of our own, I think we tend to think there's only a few spots for us. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people are like, okay, well, if he's out, there's opportunity for me to be in. And I think when it comes to other races, I don't think they think of their of spots as so few. Mm-hmm. I think they think it's room for all of us. You know what I'm saying? Like, let's cover him because, again, there's room for everybody in this joint. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. If he's, there's room for bad people, good people, all the things. Because mm-hmm. you come on the TV, there's so many roles. There's so many opportunities. There's so many spaces. There's so many opportunities. You know, there's so many things for other races. But for a black person, in most genres, I can't think of a space publicly or industry like that has just, I mean, just an abundance of the things. And so I think a lot of us think, tend to think like, mm, he's out, there's one one out, and then I have more room in, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. I think that's just kind of like controls what our perspective looks like. I think that's interesting. I didn't think of it that way, but something that you said did make me think about the respectability <laughs> politics of it all. Like there can't be any bad ones of us. Mm. Mm in spaces Mm -hmm. like everyone has to be inherently good and i think i mean when we're talking about bad versus good and morals that's like it shouldn't be a touchy subject it shouldn't be a confusing subject it shouldn't be a complicating complicated subject i think when this whole idea of comparison of black accountability versus white accountability we lose the overarching thought that everybody should be held accountable and that no one who is being continuously or currently abusive should necessarily be benefiting from someone suffering or being allowed to be in the limelight or whatever it is they're doing, continuing to line their pockets. Because my particular issue with Kanye is that no matter what he says, he's got so many things out that people are going to still continue to support his funds. And there's not going to be any actual, factual, tangible way of him being held accountable other than being talked about online. Mm-hmm. And so, which doesn't probably doesn't even matter to them. Yeah, I mean, 
Kanye himself relishes in that. He loves that. Right. Um, that's how he is relevant these days because he's losing a lack of communal support. But I don't know. I, I just asked the question because there is a double standard in it for sure. But does that double standard like matter? Is it worth making that distinction? So there's a tweet right after that um, that answers that question for me. Okay. Um, so this is Malcolic. Is that pronounced right? La Petite Re Reboots. She says, so what are you advocating for here? That a black man receive the preferential treatment white men do? Shouldn't we be calling for white men to also be held to account? Saying white men get away with it so black men should too leaves women as the victims no matter what. And I think that's the bigger point. Amen. Hallelujah. On to the next. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> that's good. That's fair. Thank you. Solved. Uh, resolved. Is that what they say in the debates? Um, <laughs> up next, Marcus Houston is under fire or is finally addressing why he prefers an underage woman versus a woman his own age. And he says it's due to baggage. But this conversation, I believe, might have sparked around the Jonathan Majors conversation as well, when people were talking about men in high places doing things that just kind of fall under the radar. Um, I don't know how old this girl was. She, she was 16 she was 19. when they started dating. He married her at 19. Oh, and there it is. So, <laughs> and he was 38 when they got married. Yeah. yeah, so that is the age difference. And I think we hear a lot about age differences being gross because, oh, well, if you were growing up with them, you would have never, and that would have been pedophilia. And so we can't necessarily say it's pedophilia in this instance because she was 16 years old. He was 30, math, 35 at the time when they started. But there is this power dynamic that makes the relationship uneven, that allows for people to be manipulated because they want to prove themselves mature enough or prove themselves able to handle very adult situations when they might not be ready for that because they feel special, because they feel picked out. So, yeah. Um, but he says that women his age come with baggage and kids, and that's why he don't want them. I thought this would be a really great topic because we have a certified life coach here. <laughs> <laughs> and... What he said is problematic, but what people are saying around dating at 30, what it comes with, or dating as you get towards 30, mm -hmm. it's also problematic. We have to understand that humans are humans. People come with stuff. And the thing is that as you get older in age, they come with more tangible stuff, like mm -hmm. kids, like bills, like debt. But it's stuff nonetheless. Mm -hmm. And it's like the healthy ways of dealing with having to date a mature person that comes with their own life outside of you um, is not by dating children. So what is the healthy ways that, the health, some healthy ways that we can go about dating while also recognizing that this person could be divorced, this person could have had a love that got away, this person could have kids, this person could have mental health issues, you know, that they've learned to become functional with. How do we deal with dating mature humans? I think we have to look at dating as a two-way street, and a lot of cis-hit men simply don't, right? Because mm. you're over 30, right? You're 35 when you met her. You have baggage. Yeah. Mm. So for you to then pinpoint the fact that, well, women over 30 have baggage, as do you. Yeah. So what you're saying is you don't want to deal with someone else's baggage, but you're fine with someone dealing with your yeah. baggage, mm. right? That's exactly what I was going to say. Offloading onto this person and them being in, at such an impressionable age that they can be groomed to suit your baggage, to hold your baggage, to work around your baggage. And so what you're saying is 
what you're like this isn't even a question about baggage you don't want someone who has also lived enough life to have boundaries Whew. you don't want someone who's <clears throat> lived enough life to have sense enough life to have wherewithal about who they are as a person and therefore cannot their world cannot be shaped around you and i think that's it um I mean, yeah, it's fair. You don't want a relationship. You want a yes woman, and that's okay. Just, just call it what it is, right? You know, this is not a relationship. This is that's a daughter you didn't give birth to, in my opinion. But I'm gonna let it move. Resolved. <laughs> he's on down. He's on down down the road. Our last kind of light topic is what the people have to say about Chance the Rapper, and y'all gonna have to leave Chance alone, please. <laughs> so maybe, uh, well, Sam, as our resident Caribbean, I would just like to take this time to let the audience know that I really have an issue with not being spicy black. Um, <laughs> I'm quite envious of those who are indeed spicy black, but yeah, girl, talk to them about chance. So first let's talk about carnival. It okay. is literally paradise on earth. <laughs> it is the fun. It is the fancy free. It is a place to be carefree, to be happy, full of joy, alcohol, and rhythm. And when I saw that video initially, I didn't see it with all the context. I just saw the video. I was like, look at Chance getting his life at Carnival. Like, because if you've ever been to Carnival, it's just a happy place to be. You, you know, you cheers in with people who you've never met before, dancing with people you've never met before. It's just everybody is celebratory. Yeah. Um, and then when I saw Chance the Rapper <laughs> seen dancing with a woman in Jamaica despite being married, it was confusing for me. <laughs> because what does that mean? We are seeing what was done to Sierra being done to Chance, and I will tell you this, mm. only because he raps about championing his love for his wife mm-hmm. and Christianity. Mm-hmm. So he has put on this, no, we have put this respectability hat on Chance. And so Chance can't move and shake certain ways. However, Chance is a person, mm-hmm. and he also, his music, rises line between the secular and the spiritual like marrying the worlds i think speaking to a community and audience of millennials who are drifting away from religion i won't say church but religion in particular Mm -hmm. and finding new ways to talk to god and be in communion with god and so there are people who don't like him for that or don't credit him as being as good a rapper as others because of that. I know when I used to teach high school, those boys were like, man, Chance not a rapper, he's a poet, and he don't really be rapping, he be doing all this other kind of stuff, and he doesn't get the same respect, I think, and respect in this case is the freedom to do what you wanna do mm-hmm. without, without criticism and people actually coming to your aid when you might do some outlandish stuff. Chance doesn't get that because we've put the respectability hat on him because of who he sh- shaped and carved himself to be. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think it's also, I think this is a big projection, if you ask me, to be honest. I think a lot of people are just projecting what they believe to be parameters for love, for mm-hmm. relationship, for marriage, right? Like that could be very well within their yeah. parameters. That could mm-hmm. be like, hey, when you go to carnival, you dance it up, live your life. Mm-hmm. But I think for us, if we hear a black man say, and I don't want to make it racial, racial, I'll take that back. When we hear a person say, I love and honor and blah, blah. We receive that from our version of love and honor, right? So we know what for us love and honor looks like, which is whatever that, that is. And so for you to think that this person loves his wife so much, how could he get a dance? Like, which, which is why the Twitter says, you know, seen dancing in Jamaica despite being married. Because in your mind, marriage doesn't leave room for 
getting twerked by a, a girl at carnival or whatever the other things may look like. Likewise to Christianity. If you say you're a Christian and you love God, it doesn't leave room for tattoos. It doesn't leave room for secular music. It doesn't leave room for, you know, partying or, or marijuana or whatever that may look like. And I think all this stuff seems to be like a really huge projection. I think we do our, ourselves a disservice by projecting what we believe to be good, especially when it comes to relationships. And I can't wait for the day we talk about this like in grand scale because mm-hmm. I think so much of this happens in, in our space. The Russell mm-hmm. Wilson, everybody has their version of, well, my wife couldn't and my husband yeah. couldn't. This ain't your wife or your husband. And they don't <laughs> have no husband or wife. <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? And even if you do and it, that doesn't fly with y'all, you're, that is fine for y'all, but this mm-hmm. flies for us. Yeah. What flies over here may not fly over there and that's fine. This person tweeted, thuggish, ruggish, boo. Thuggish, thuggish, mm-hmm. ruggish, bone. <laughs> she said, regarding Chance the Rapper, you can't love your you can't love your wife and also catch ass at Carnival? The straights make marriage sound unbearably stale. And I... Do. <laughs> Do. Do. And boring and everything else. And I'm not saying the opposite of that is non-monogamy and doing the things, but good God Almighty, can he breathe long for long terms of uh, long periods of time? Jesus yeah. Christ. And it just gives that they just... Whoever is feeling upset about this, you couldn't have been to Carnival before. Because I'm not going to lie to you, yes. Looking at the video, I will say the double slap. I was like, okay, Chance, let's, let's relax. You're on camera. <laughs> um, but at the same time, even if me and my partner went to Carnival, as possessive as I am sometimes, like I don't even like when women laugh at his joke. What's so funny? He's not that funny. Like, why are we? You're dragging it. But... I want him to have a good time here because Carnival is such a once in a lifetime feeling and experience. You know, like I don't think that he's gonna dance with a girl and leave me yeah. because of that dance. Mm-hmm. Like I don't think that he's gonna be contemplating like you know crazy thoughts because he had this experience. And I love what you said. What flies here may not fly there, and that's okay because that's why we're not together. Yeah. Because honestly, you bringing that up makes me think my my guy impossible. It would never happen. <laughs> Oh my god! But when I saw it, I didn't. I didn't judge it. I'm like, okay, cool. That works for their relationship. Mm-hmm. Now me, I don't nothing but side hugs for the rest of your days. I don't want to <laughs> see a two hand situation. I don't know what's going on there. I don't know why you would even be at carnival. What's going on there? You can go to a carnival cruise with me. <laughs> you can go to a carnival on a Ferris wheel. But that kind of carnival's not happening. And that's so funny to me because my boyfriend would never, because he just doesn't like these type of environments. But I. I'm perfectly fine with him being at a strip club or having strippers for a his, club. Yes, a strip club or having strippers for his little bachelor or whatever. I, he would never, but I honestly just don't care. He can do a club I soda, really maybe some club crackers. Nah. It's not giving. <laughs> it's just not a giving strip club. Club crackers is crazy. <laughs> club crackers is crazy. Um, the other thing about it is carnival in particular being the way that it is. It has it's so much informed by the culture. And I don't know nothing about it because, like I said, I'm not spicy black. But <laughs> have you if you've seen dance hall experiences? Yeah. Mm-hmm. The way these folks dance, I use crazy and insane and admiration in yeah. this context because yeah. I could not one throw my ass like that. Yeah. I could not. I'm not that flexible. I don't trust myself to be hanging off ceilings with you. But that's what they do. That's what yeah. they do. That's the experience, and it's. I don't know what it communicates culturally, but it's a thing. I'm not going to go there and be like, I'm not going to go there and white people. I'm not going to go there and expect for for me and my partner to try to hold up these walls of our culture and someone else's space, but also for us to just have communication, clear communication about what we do expect in these spaces when we go mm-hmm. in there. So I just think it's a, a huge lack of wherewithal and also a lack of wherewithal 
lack of wherewithal on the possibilities of marriage because it looked different. It's not the same no more. And I think this is, this is why they hate women because they themselves think that once they get a woman, they're not going to be able to do all these things, but that's because they don't like to communicate and that's because they like for the world to revolve around them. No, but we're talking about Freaknik because the people came to Twitter in a tizzy for multiple reasons. Some of the first people to come to Twitter were, in fact, the people who were at Freaknik themselves. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there is, it's a video, so I won't play it, but let me see, see who tweeted it so you can just go find it. You're talking about the auntie. The auntie. Mm -hmm. uh, at Train Like Dime said all the Freaknik auntie scared because this woman who gives... Freaknik auntie. She's got like a short lock bob situation. You can tell she might be in her 40s um, to 50s. And she is a little exasperated. She's a little bit, oh, Jesus. Jesus She said, Lord. Jesus be a fence of privacy. That's what she said. Because Please. we're going to get into the background of Freaknik, but just a brief overview. It's called Freaknik. And it eventually became a sex fest. And we're going to get into the details of how hip hop culture really influenced the way young people showed up to Freaknik and how they engaged in Freaknik. And so many of the people that were there could not have imagined what they did at Freaknik being on a public platform. Now, people was walking around with video cameras. People were doing things for video cameras, willingly and consensually. Sure. Some people were not. But regardless, a lot of these people expected that to live within the confines of spring break when people had camcorders and VH and 8mm tapes. And if somebody wanted to share something, they had to go down to the store to get film developed mm -hmm. and send and mail things. Mm -hmm. And it was just a whole different world than what it is today, being able to tweet out things that we've been seeing yeah. in the discourse. So let's get into the background. I found out some really interesting things. Shout out to Victor for giving us so many, um, so many nuggets to discuss. But the documentary itself is being produced by Jermaine Dupree and Uncle Luke. They are the EPs, and they really exemplify hip hop's integral part in in Freaknik. Uncle Luke himself, his music was popularized because of Freaknik and uh, black people, black kids coming to Atlanta for spring break and playing a lot of hip hop music and things like that. There's a showrunner named Geraldine L. Porras. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. And the director is P. Frank Williams. Now I would like to put a pin in Geraldine because she's actually specifically more interested in conscious media. So I do wonder what her role is gonna be and the story that's gonna be told in this documentary. We were announced we were notified that this was going to happen on April 6th. We don't know a release date. It's probably just going into production. But the description on Hulu, I think, is kind of problematic. Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, is going to be the name of the documentary. And the description they gave, it says, it recounts the rise and fall of a small Atlanta HBCU picnic that exploded into an influential street party and spotlighted Atlanta as a major cultural stage. Can the magic of Freaknik be brought back 40 years later? Magic of Freaknik is strong. Magic is crazy. <laughs> and I mean, I don't even think it is strong. There are two sides to every story. And I know if you've been looking at your timeline, you already know the story that we're about to get into. But a family friend of mine owns one of these vintage shops here and he collects Freaknik tees. I saw his collection. I love them. I wanted the Freaknik 95 tees. I was born in 95. I was like, ooh, that's my year. Ooh, nostalgia. Ooh, this cute black culture, HBCU, all that. And learning from him, 
he always talked about Freaknik as a protest. Mm. And he saw Freaknik tees as protest art mm. and a way to cap encapsulate that moment in something tangible. And I always thought it was interesting the way that he talked about it and inspiring about the way that he talked about it because he talked in terms of black youth disrupting space for their enjoyment. Mm-hmm. And when you think about it in general terms like that, that does sound amazing. It does sound magical. It does sound defiant. It does sound political, especially during the rise of hip hop. When when the rise of hip hop was concurrent with the rise of the war on drugs, everybody wanted to criminalize black gatherings and things like that. So when you contextualize it in that way, the essence of what it is could be something magical. However, it became something dark over time. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's get into it. What surprised me to learn is that in 1982, a group of Spelman women and students from Morris Brown started having a picnic to relieve their stress of midterms. Then other HBCUs like Morehouse Clark and, and surrounding states and across the country started to join in. We don't know where the name Freaknik came from, but it was influenced by music of the time. And the most recent information about the name says it's connected to a dance called The Bump, which was also called Freaking. Do it in the bump. Not the butt. Uh, The bump. The bump. (laughs) I'm going to stop trying to get musical references. No, it's fine. It's fine. Mm -hmm. Because R&B is your thing. I'm just trying to get some musical reference happening. This is not working. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Um, it was also called Freaking back in the day, and Freaking plus Picnic, you get Freaknik. Yeah. And so that's where we think it's coming from. How it entered the cultural con- cultural conscious, black creators started mentioning it as we like did. If you watched any of the resurgence, I won't say resurgence, but during the pandemic when Netflix and Hulu put all those black sitcoms back on streaming for us to see, we saw how Moesha, how Sister Sister, how the Parkers. Mm-hmm. All kinds of shows were incorporating artists of the time, music of the time, um, branching over into other networks. I remember one Sister Sister, the Sister Sister episode where they went to Freaknik, it was Maya and... 112? Take me there. I want to go there. There you go. Take, Take me, me there. I want to go there. Yeah. Take me to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they were doing all the things. And so yeah. that's very much how Freaknik became mm-hmm. known to the public. Spike mm-hmm. Lee included a reference to Freaknik in school days in 1988 and 1989. It was in an episode of Different World and Sister Sister was in the later 90s. Yeah. And it blew up and it came from a picnic to a citywide block party. We've seen images of 20 Lockdown, 75, lockdown, people jumping out of their cars and just having a party in the streets. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what's really what we have to consider when we think about why Freaknik was such a game changer or such a phenomenon is because it celebrated this view of the Dirty South that everybody wanted to buy in on mm-hmm. because that was one of the major places hip hop was rising, a specific type of hip hop was rising as well. Mm-hmm. And before we get into hip hop, I think it's really also important to discuss the economics of Freaknik. I'm not going to say it was encouraged, but it wasn't shut down until the Olympics mm-hmm. because it brought in a whole lot of money. Yeah. It was bringing in tens of million dollars just because of the people flocking through the city. So right. you're talking right. about like hotels, restaurants, all kinds of things making so much more money with this influx of people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, as more and more people came, crime started to rise. And by 1994, Mayor Bill Campbell had to appoint a special committee to handle Freaknik. Hmm. 
1994 is where we saw the switch in the tone of Freaknik. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when the Olympics happened in 1996 or prior to the Olympics happening, they tried to rebrand it. The last major Freaknik was Freaknik was Freaknik 96. They tried to rename it Spring Jam 97 because they were trying to gentrify. They were trying to make Atlanta Olympics ready and that Atlanta would be representing America that year. Yeah. And of course, we don't want dirty South rap music contextualizing foreigners' experience when they come on American soil. Mm-hmm. Complex right now has the best oral history. There's a true life documentary. If you guys want to watch clips of that on YouTube, I will let you know that the clips on YouTube are triggering. Mm-hmm. And those are also clips that people were bringing out on Twitter and clips that showcase a bunch of different things. Y'all feel free to jump in about things that you saw, but we all know the conversation started, especially with aunties hopping on playfully saying, Lord, please don't let it be me on the screen, but people saying your moms and your aunties are gonna be embarrassed. And the first thing that we think about, because even on these t-shirts, you see illustration of women with their ass out. Mm-hmm. Um, on top of dudes, like a leg up, like that's how we're remembering this moment, but we're focusing on the women. And I wonder, I wonder, are we focusing on the women because it might have been started by a group of women? Well, um, <clears throat> when you said the first thing about protests, mm-hmm. like your family friend saying that Freak Nick was a thing of protest, mm-hmm. Freak Nick was a thing that started because of feminine liberation. You have to think about the 80s and the 90s. This is a time where women are now becoming comfortable with their bodies. Hip-hop culture is allowing women to embrace a different side of themselves. So we're seeing a different difference in the fashion. We're seeing a difference in in dating. Mm-hmm. You know, we're seeing a difference in, um, you know, a lot of things related to sexuality, uh, more openness. You have songs like When Kaya Did My Neck, My Back. Like, You have these women that are coming out in these revealing outfits. And they're not coming out in these revealing outfits because of the men. They're coming out in these outfits because it's the fashion. I look good. Look at my body. Look at, yes, sis, do your thing. So kind of how we have like the soft girl era right now. Mm. That was the fine girl era. You <laughs> know, like... The girls were doing the different hairstyles, the long, like, it was baps. Like, think about what the 90s meant, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And so we're talking about the women because quickly these women were shut down in that attempt at liberation. And it was like, oh, you want to be naked? You must want to be a hoe. And that thing that was black girl joy quickly became an access point for men to do things and to feel um, entitled Mm -hmm. to spaces that they weren't even invited into. So a girl wanting to be, you know, have fun and dance or just flirt a little bit, just do something that could have started out innocent becomes, oh, you must want me to have sex with you. You must want to show off yourself to men. This must be a display of entertainment for men. I wouldn't even give niggas that much credit. Mm -hmm. And credit in saying I wouldn't give them, <laughs> I wouldn't give it to them that they had the forethought to think that, oh, I must want that. Like mm. my desire isn't a part of the conversation. Mm. And you said something that really spoke to me when we were on a panel mm-hmm. at the at Morehouse the other day. When it comes to consent, 
men are thinking about it as a two-person experience and so women's Ooh. consent isn't even in their wherewithal when they're thinking about engaging in the act and so yep. for me the statement has changed is oh you want to be naked you can't do that without me mm. Mm. you're not supposed to be doing that without me and what's also interesting is during this era freaknik the first iterations of freaknik starting in 1982 and ending in 1996 it progressed and evolved with the growth of hip hop. And while men, while hip hop is a male dominated space, there have always been women, like you said, mm-hmm. owning themselves and having autonomy, whether they want it to be sexual or not. Think about Queen Latifah as one of these figures who was owning her space, but wasn't necessarily talking about sex. I mean, we found out later because she wasn't interested in sex with men, but. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I think it's really important to recognize that both men and women were influenced by hip hop in different ways coming into the space. That's why I said they engaged it in different ways. Women were empowered by the way they saw some women embracing their sexuality and men were empowered by the way they saw men handling women and and not really allowing women a active role in their sexual expression. Really, really that they dominated and or controlled the narrative when it came to women's sexuality. And I saw one of these videos on Twitter talked about how, and I don't know if it started this way or what they really bought these cameras for, but people with these camcorders on their shoulders, not only were they catching like sexual acts on camera, but they also came with the intent inspired by these videos to catch some of that in their own experience and and take up space in the same way. And that's where I think the irresponsibility of listening to music and allowing music to inform your real world comes into play. Because we talk so much about hip hop artists writing about what they know. Mm-hmm. And loud as it's kept, what a lot of hip artists, hip hop artists know coming from homes with either single parents or homes where domestic violence is common or communities where gangs run things and women are in service to gang members and whatever, Mm -hmm. that's what they're saying in music. Mm -hmm. But then you got people who don't know nothing about that and just are taking that along with so much other toxic masculinity and massage noir and just projecting it onto these women who don't know nothing about them. They don't know nothing about these women, you know? I think it's unfair the way we compartmentalize women's experience, women ex- women's experience um, in like night like nightlife activity or party environments, mm-hmm. and I mean it to say this, I think sometimes we, I think it's I think it's too binary. On the one hand, it's like women, you know, are dressing for women and they don't da 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 da. There are women who came to Freaknik who were trying to have sex. Yeah, but I it was a fair. but it was a very directed experience. That, that doesn't mean because I come with the intent to have sex that I want to have sex with anybody, right? right? And I think we tend to forget that part of it. You're like, yeah, she was dressing her skimpy. She wanted you to see them cheeks. Mm-hmm. She wanted that guy over there, Joseph, in the corner to see her cheeks. Not the guy who took advantage of her. Not the other guy who 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 assaulted her sexually. She wanted one specific person. And I think mm-hmm. we tend to think about this whole experience as like, well, she had her cakes out, and when then we then we then couple that with she did it for girls. No, she did it for the men. However, it was for one specific one. And again, mm-hmm. back to consent, which again was a, I don't know if it was a, a popular term in the 80s and 90s. Then I think also when we think about liberation, civil rights is what, 60s? 
when was civil rights? rights? Yeah, mm-hmm. like 60s. Okay. And so we're talking about, and so I'm saying like this could have been the first iteration publicly and in a grand scale of like joy from that moment, right? We're talking about like off of the heels of civil rights and just wanting those mm-hmm. moments for ourselves as black people, which is why I think protests feel so applicable in this moment, where it's mm-hmm. like another moment in which we kind of accomplish something, which yeah. is to find some peace and some joy in a country mm-hmm. that really ain't here for us for real. And sexual freedom, and I I wanted to just throw that term in there because that is the context of joy we're talking about here. And I think it's something something to be said about looking at the timeline. We go from the 60s to the 70s where feminism, black feminism in particular, was growing in different ways. And somebody like Bell Hooks would have probably, I wouldn't say spit on, but hated the Mm -hmm. the idea of Freaknik because she was not for the male gaze at all. But you have a class of women emerging from one and a half wave black feminism, I don't know, who want to engage this space, who want to explore, want the freedom to do that safely. And what I, I won't say enjoyed, but what I found interesting and what I felt warm about is that the things that we're saying today are not new. Women was running their mouth about being able to be out and butt ass naked if they wanted to, and being touched in certain ways was not warranted. And also being able to hold space with other women who might have wanted those things. Yeah. And not be worried mm-hmm. about their experience because they're worried about their own experience and the multiplicity of women exploring and owning their sexuality and not even just having sex, but how I want to walk outside and be. It's spring break. I saw this girl in this real cute, like pink onesie number, cheeks out. And I was like, damn girl, you look good. And I know she knew she looked good or thought she looked good or felt good when she stepped at the house like yep. that. And there's not many spaces that you can do that, especially in 18, in, not 1882, 1982. <laughs> yeah. um, and so where were women going to fulfill their fantasies, if not the space that started out and away from them to create that space for themselves? And what I like about the topic is that we're seeing the history be iconized in real time. We have access to oral histories. We have access to this true life documentary. But we're seeing people who were there engage in conversation in real time. And we're seeing how this social phenomenon characterized by young black people was on its surface unrelated to any political movement Mm. per se. But now we have an opportunity to engage in how the history is being written down and Mm. set in stone. Like We get an opportunity for people to say what exactly happened and I'd like to hear more. I wonder what the goal and purpose and direction of this documentary is going to look like because I'd like to hear more about the women who started this. What were your intentions? Because we're just seeing on Twitter that we think women started this so they could get their freak on. Hmm. But what was the actual intention? If it was, great, fantastic, that's revolutionary. And I would like to just little know a little bit more about that. I want to hear some women who were there be like, that's me. <laughs> and I was doing me. Because I feel like yeah. I'm not shy if someone sees it. I don't mind. I was in my 20s and having a good time. Yeah. Like, I'm not apologizing for having a good time in my 20s. It was a part of my 20s, bro. I'm not finna, you know what I'm saying? I think we tend to think, oh, well, someone's going like, to be embarrassed and someone's auntie is going to be ashamed. No, she's not. She's chilling. But mm-hmm. let's talk about the <laughs> embarrassment, right? Because I think em- I keep hearing the word embarrassed yeah. go around. And I don't necessarily think it's a thing of embarrassment because I think everyone had their intentions for being a part of this right but it's the fact that number one this was a time where people couldn't even conceptualize this content being a mainstream thing Mm -hmm. they're literally thinking this is a cassette tape sitting down in somebody's basement Mm -hmm. that's never gonna pop up again 
it's also a thing of some of these women are having to relive their trauma and it's already mm -hmm. happening on social media. I'm going to reference a tweet um, that has a, um, it has a, a very graphic video. It's by K Not Bay. It says, it's a true life Freaknik documentary that just scratched the surface. Hopefully they don't try to sanitize it because this has been spoken about before. Mm -hmm. Now in this clip, there is a person speaking about them witnessing a sexual assault. Mm -hmm. And there's footage of the entire thing happening. And what you see happening is that there's a lady, there's, um, I guess it's like a t-shirt contest or something like that happening mm -hmm. on stage. Mm -hmm. And in the crowd, there's a woman dancing on this guy. And they're getting into it, they're vibing. And just like you said, some of these women are coming there with a certain man in mind. Like, I want to meet this type of guy, or maybe I'm going with my guy, or maybe mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm just going there to, like, see what the dudes are about. And so she's into it. He's into it. They're having a good time. The camera pans to what's happening on stage, and then it pans back to her. The crowd of men are grabbing at her clothes, stripping her naked, and attacking her. All while the guy is there, and I'm thinking, like, oh, my God, like, what happened to the guy, blah, blah, blah. The camera zooms in. He's a part of it. And they begin to assault this woman. And nobody does anything. Nobody stops. So I don't think it's necessarily a thing of embarrassment all the way. It's also a thing of, like, this is stuff that people are have probably healed from or are still healing from or have, like, blacked out, probably just in denial that it ever happened. And now there's a, a section of people that have to, to see this again on a screen where nobody was giving out waivers back then about mm -hmm. like, are you okay with being screened? People's faces are going to have to be on here. Somebody's going to have to have, have to have the conversation of like, mom, I didn't know you were sexually assaulted. And I think it's, it's funny because not funny, but not funny, haha, funny, weird. Mm -hmm. um, but I think about how I, I tend to think about this and I think I'm compartmentalizing it this way because a lot of people compartmentalize it compartmentalize things this way as if we didn't have language back then right mm. We, mm. the lack of language does not affirm the behavior I and know. i really want people to understand that whether or not these women understood that i'm being assaulted they understood that i was uncomfortable and disrespected mm -hmm. or whatever that may look like right maybe i didn't have the language to call it sexual assault maybe i didn't have the language to talk about consent maybe I, but i had the language for no i had a language for chill out i had the language for keep it keep it chill right and i think yeah. for a lot of people we think well you know even identity it didn't exist back then people knew who they liked mm -hmm. people knew who they were coming for mm -hmm. that's not foreign but i think we talk about to your point it's like a lot of these things are happening in hindsight and they're happening in hindsight with language now. So we're able to say what this was in an era where you might not even have language for your experience. And honestly, that's not even foreign to today's society, to be honest. We have 11-year-old women who are being touched inappropriately who don't have language. Mm -hmm. We have 10-year-old boys who are being touched inappropriately who do not have language. Mm -hmm. And so it's like now we're able to put language on an environment. And I think back to the point from last episode where it's like this is a black thing and we're also black people talking about a black thing. And then kind of even ironing out what that looks like socially for us, right? Because we don't want to take down what it means for, again, a Spelman woman, a Spelman woman and Morris Brown students to come together and do what black fraternities have done over years. And all these people have, I, I'm, I need to find an outlet, essentially. And then it grows into something that may or may not have been the intention. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't, again, excuse you from being called out or called in or, you know what I'm saying, held accountable for the fact that this has been 
turned into something that may or may not have been a positive experience for somebody else Mm -hmm. and being sensitive to the humanity of it. Again, I think we tend to forget humanity as we recount history. Mm-hmm. And one of the questions in here, um, and I wish I had it up right now, but it's something along, along the lines of, you know, at what point does nostalgia... Is this generation's obsession there with nostalgia helpful or harmful? And how informed are we about these nostalgic moments in our history? That's a question, And boy. that's the, the good God Almighty, that ain't a question. Like, that's a question, boy. I just bought a freaking t-shirt. Like, damn. Yeah. What year was it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I'll go ahead, Brian. Uh-uh, that's it <laughs> I was just gonna say imagine being in 1995 even right mm-hmm. or 1994 whichever one you wanna um, you're assaulted at Freaknik and you go to the police and you file a report and you answer the question so where did this happen I was at Freaknik and the immediate like disinterest and seeing the face of that detective and knowing that this is not going to be taken seriously. Like you were at Freaknik. What were you wearing? Who were you with? Were you drinking? And it just being like, I can imagine all the women that were assaulted there that were just like, I'm not even going to waste my time. Imagine, let's go even before the police. Imagine being gaslit by your friends because they want to have a good time still. Yes. Mm. Like imagine that moment. Like, hey, this guy touched you inappropriately. I think I'm gonna go to the cops. Hey, girl, don't you mess tripping. up. You don't mess up our moment. This is fun. We, we girl, it happens. We trying to go to the thing. We girl, trying to go to the... trying to. So how many women experienced that and decided, let me just be quiet? Because again, how often does that happen in marginalized spaces where you feel like, well, let me kind of just take this one on the chin because everybody want to have a good time. And another layer is just imagine it being so normal at Freaknik that you get up off the ground from wherever you at and keep it pushing. Rolls eyes and keeps pushing. Yeah. <sighs> So something I wanted to briefly touch on, because it's going to get into another essential question for us, is how uh, po- heavily policed Freaknik was. Mm-hmm. And it's so interesting to me. We can talk about the history of criminalizing black gatherings mm-hmm. from, from jump because they were scared of us, scared of us getting too, too smart, too rowdy, too in cahoots. Um, mm-hmm. Some slave codes in Alabama, it should not be lawful for more than five male slaves, either with or without passes, to assemble together at any place off the proper plantation to which they belong. This extended into black codes in the 1860s, right after freedom or starting into um, the Civil War and proceeding after that, where it made it lawful to enforce the same parameters of slavery after that, basically saying you could not loiter, basically saying that you had to, and you you could connect loitering to anything. Like yeah. if you did not have a job, if you were on somebody's property, like they were stipulations around our movement yeah, and all these negative connotations that came with black people being together. Yes. Starting in fear, but then also just laced with all of these dog whistle politics, making up shit about black people really being reinforced by the war on drugs. Like I said earlier, happening at the same time as freak Nick. And it all contributes to this idea that black gatherings and black neighborhoods lead to no good drugs, violence, whatever. Yeah. So with all of these things swimming in the air, you have this overwhelming police presence but if all these women are still getting assaulted, what were the police there to do? Mm. And so when I was reviewing this, I thought a lot about the invisibility of black women's experiences mm. and their rape, their sexual assault, not being the thing police are looking for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so not being addressed, not providing a safe haven, not really allowing an outlet. And I saw one of these videos where a woman talked about how she was about to be dragged out of her car and somebody yelled police you know, when the black men scattered, but I feel like this hits on one of the points 
you brought up last episode as well, like when does calling the police the better option? Mm -hmm. Is it a better option? Will it be helpful? What do black people do when we're the ones we need protecting from? Yeah. Mm. I think slavery is a necessary additive here though. Mm. So I'm glad it was part of the the additions to the conversation because I think I was thinking about the Willie Lynch letter, right? Mm -hmm. And where he boldly says this will control slaves for three hundred years, guaranteed. Mm -hmm. Like this will control them. And I think to then have those sets of people uh, we think about 100 years later, that sounds like a long time, but that's not many generations of people. You know what I'm saying? So mm -hmm. I think about like, yeah, you know, like when we're talking about generation, that can mean some people are great grandparents for real. And I think it's just a very interesting additive that we're talking about going from one forceful environment to then dealing with police, which feels a lot like the same system, not mm -hmm. the same idea, but the same system. And I think when we're talking about the systemic oppression that, again, I don't think we had language for during this time period, but it's like, you're right, that, that apprehension about, honestly, who's going to protect me here? Mm -hmm. Like, just facts. Mm -hmm. And it's like, even using cops as, like, the imaginary boyfriend women use so they can possibly get a little bit of respect, it seemed like that's what the women were using back then to scare off black men, where it's like, I'm going to call the cops. They really ain't gonna do shit. Right. But again, that's that's the imaginary boyfriend trope that I'm gonna play to mm -hmm. hopefully get some comfort in this scenario. And I think, and I don't want to necessarily put all of the area in that way because I'm even in my mind thinking about as a queer person thinking about what was the queer experience during mm -hmm. this time. Because some mm -hmm. of the HIV AIDS epidemic in the 70s and 80s, mm -hmm. and we're talking like just all these things that are happening in in tandem, and even the assault of of queer men and queer women, and just all of the things that are playing here. Yeah, <laughs> that I think is necessary to talk about, but I also think it's interesting that again, we're censoring this in the midst of what's supposed to be a very fun party filled environment that again, to me, and you know, here we are, but like, I think white supremacy plays a, a really huge part in the way in which this is politicized and the way in which this, this party turned, because he was talking about Olympics earlier, right? We talked about how like, okay, let's clean it up. Like, we'll, we'll give you guys a, a little minute to kind of do your thing and, the violence wasn't enough to stop it. Like, if we're, we're getting all these reports, whatever the case may be, that's not enough to stop this joint. But the Olympics didn't happen in our city? Okay, now yeah. let's clean this place up. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't enough when black bodies were being hurt by the black bodies. Let them, again, like, likewise to slavery. Let them kill, let, let them kill each other. Mm -hmm. But again, oh, wait, wait, Olympics coming here? Okay, no, 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 no. Let's, let's, now let's change let's the name. That. Let's mm -hmm. do the things. Your, your, your name ain't Toby no more. Your name is Ah-Ah-Ah. So I can get you sold. Mm -hmm. And it's like, now we're talking about all these things that feel reflective. And it's hard to then like take something because again, you're right. There's a, tra there's, a there's such a tra traumatic experience for some, but there probably is a positive experience for some. Mm -hmm. So then, what do they do with their moments, right? Mm -hmm. and, I, and again, this feels a lot like Greek life, right? There's people have a positive experience with Greeks, a negative one. But again, a lot of these black spaces that are organized that garner people in large numbers, we see moments like this. But I mean, if we want to keep it funky, like if it wasn't for the economic value that white people realized in the North and South realized that they were missing out on by not having full access to the black dollar, we wouldn't have a civil rights movement. You know what I'm saying? Like a lot of that was what happened in the civil rights movement was based on the economy. Like if we allow them to be a part of our economy and pretend that they can have their little businesses and give them enough money so that they can now participate in actually buying and doing things and wanting to be a part of what we have going on, then we're able to benefit more. So it doesn't surprise me that 
shift happened when they recognized that, oh my God, Atlanta is bringing in all of this money. We now have a new economic opportunity. Mm -hmm. Let's go ahead and make, not only like make money off of the fact that this black thing brought value to our city. Now let's go ahead and and see what we can get off of it. And the sad part about it is that as black people, like we're never thinking 10 steps ahead when it comes to these things. We're just thinking about, oh yeah, this is a good time. This is a cool thing. This is a blah, blah, blah. But we're never thinking about what's happening in our communities. We're actually adding to it. It made me also think about, I have pulled up this tweet of somebody saying, I watched a documentary about Freaknik once and this part of it made my stomach turn. These animals were snatching girls out of cars. Like, as people were driving through, and it's crazy to me that you say that this was a police event. As people were driving through. I didn't say it was a police event. I said police was around there. They was lurking. <laughs> crazy. But again, that, uh, and not to cut you off, but mm-hmm. that's an indicator that the police force isn't designed to prevent crime, but to catch it. Yeah. So there were women driving through and as they're driving their vehicles, even people that may not have been involved in the event are just trying to get home. Like men started jumping on top of their cars and like smashing in the roof, in the hood, um, and then got off and started like pulling them out of their vehicles to assault them. The black men that are doing this to black women know that these police don't care about these black women. They're not going to do it. They're not gonna stop me from doing this to you. And so I'm going to continue doing it to you. And and I don't know. I mean, <laughs> police are like the final boss, if you will. But they're the only boss because it's not even an idea of the police aren't going to stop me. The other black men inundating this space aren't going to stop me. They're going to join me. And we even see that in some of the documentary footage from True Life or wherever there being spaces where few black men are saying things like just because a woman is dressed this way doesn't mean she wants this and in the same breath someone right next to them with a more dominating voice is saying I'm not gonna grab nobody but you can't wear this and have your ass out and da 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 and then turn around and be like I didn't know I was gonna get right there's literally something someone said and -hmm. these are the dominating voices um, of the time and so I think what you said OBO has a lot of credence what you're saying sim has a lot of credence this one event is going to evoke so many different emotions and memories for sure for the millions of people that were there for the hundreds Mm -hmm. of thousands i don't know if millions of people ever went but hundreds of thousands of people that went to a freaknik they're going to have different stories and some of them are going to be funny some of them are going to be exciting some are they're going to be happy some are going to be really sad and some are going to be all of that at once which is Mm -hmm. the toughest part where it's like, mm, where how I, do you reconcile? How do you reconcile? Because I found pleasure in this event at one point, but then yeah. I found trauma in there at the yeah. same time. And so I was like, what does that even look like? Victor put a quote in here from Cecily Bowen, Bowen's um, Bad Fat Black Girl. Black women are uniquely exposed to these worst case outcomes of anti-black racism and state-sanctioned violence. We can't trust government officials or programs to act in our best interests. And we don't want to create more opportunities for members of our community to be harmed by the U.S. penal system. So she's saying this in relation to being in being between a rock and a hard place when it comes to wanting to protect the same black men that so often abuse black women. And I feel like that's kind of, you know, the place that a lot of these people were in, Mm -hmm. you know, um, 
also you have to think about the mental state of being a black woman abused by somebody that looks like you and knowing that even though the police don't care about you, um, what's going to happen to that black man if he was even tried is going to be even worse than you want to happen. So, And I'm a, we've been talking about this for a minute, but mm-hmm. just to put it a nip in the bud, that's just what we got to stop doing. We had a conversation about yeah. that the last time we were here. There's no more space for that. For what? For considering predators. I was just in Tulum with my girlfriends for my mm. birthday. We got on a yatch. Come on, Paid yatch. for the yatch. Was so excited about the yatch. Had a time of our life. My best friend got on a boat, got on a little paddle boat and had to paddle for a picture. Got on the boat. This is one of my most responsible friends like in life and that is con- it's necessary to the story. We're sitting there reminding our business. She got on the boat she got on the boat with the paddle. Mm-hmm. Service people on the yacht helped her onto the boat. The equipment is theirs. They managed the equipment. She just got her ass on the boat, took their hands, got on the boat. I'm on whatever you call it, the front of it is, and I noticed someone like pull her to the side. And my 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 ears are up, my eyes are up. I'm like, what's going on? And you can tell the conversation turns tender where me and my friends are exchanging looks to make sure everything is straight. And when she got up there, she told me, so they lost the paddle. He told me to say something very specific when we get back, he's not gonna bring it up, but if they lose the paddle, um, they're gonna have to pay for it. Or if we had lost the paddle, we would have to pay for it. She made, he made sure to tell her that that would be an option, but also gave her very specific language to share when we got back. Mm-hmm. And she said, it's okay, he's gonna like look out for us. While we're on this boat, we learned that this man like teaches salsa classes, that he has kids or whatever. So when we get back, me and my rowdy friend, <laughs> we go to the bathroom. We come out of the bathroom, there's a hole to do. Ownership has cornered my friend, talking to her about this lost paddle, and walks up to me and says, since she paid for the boat, you owe us $150. I immediately swivel my head around to look back. What's that man name? I don't even know. Don't even know. Don't even deserve his day's name. But he head ducked, moving shit around on the boat, cleaning up, not looking at our, in our direction at all. Mm-hmm. And my friend, who was the one who was accused of losing said paddle, was like, I'm not interested in getting nobody in trouble. This man needs his job. Like, we're tourists. And, like, we got $150. Like, it's okay. Meanwhile, they've given us food on dirty plates that caused someone to be sick. This same man who gave her this story to make up and essentially – he gave her a story to say that would make her at fault for losing the paddle, not the, not the crew on the boat. Mm-hmm. This same man was also, however, sexually harassing one of my friends on the trip. Not even on no kiki, haha, you cute, on this girl, begging her to kiss to her kiss in the face. In the Can I touch you? And I had to tell him myself, don't touch her. Don't touch her again. He's like, no, I want to. I was like, no. Nah. And me also not wanting to make it the most awkward thing. I'm the birthday girl. And I said, don't touch her. Making it a joke. And he said, OK, fine. Literally every time she was alone, he would come and find her and ask her to kiss her. So we had all these complaints ourselves, but now we look like irresponsible tourists who have lost something and are making a scene because we don't want to pay. We just pay X amount of dollars for this yacht. You don't think we got $150? And that's not even to boss up, but it's like you're treating us this way because someone had the opportunity to tell a story prior to you. Someone was able to be predatory enough to put us in a position of feeling comfortable with him on this boat, but set us up in the end. We end up having to pay $150, but we're not believed about anything. 
-hmm. We go through these email exchanges. I'm demanding this. And they keep saying, sorry, but, sorry, but, and there's no consideration for us as passengers. This person might have kept their job because once we said that accusation, yes, she went to go talk to him, but he got ready for the next people to come on the boat. Oh, no, so she he called didn't us liars. Day. Yeah, oh, well, there's that. Same man, once we finally had enough, I waited on my friend because she was the victim in this uh, matter, both of them. I waited on them to give me the okay to be a mouthpiece. But it was kind of too late mm. for us to have like strong footing. But once I did say something, the same man that was super tender, Kiki with us on the boat, came and like verbally attacked us at the little kiosk saying, why would you say I would do something like that? What's wrong with y'all? Why would you ever accuse me? Niggas, it's crazy. Never flip mm -hmm. on you in a dime. Mm -hmm. But here we go. On die. a dime. So yeah, we got to stop that, ladies. And I say, and this was happening, I think at the height of the Megan conversation and my friend who once again was the first person to say I'm not interested in snitching on nobody I'm not interested in doing these things was very quiet on the ride home being reflective like man I I, I put this man and whatever his life that I know nothing about ahead of me I allowed myself to be victimized I allowed myself and we got up out of there because it was Mexico and I kept saying the federal is not gonna come get me yeah I'm not gonna get stuck in Mexico for nobody so we you know did enough to stand up for ourselves was I think everyone, we were in a house of five women. The statistic is literally four and five black women have been sexually assaulted and four and five of us had been sexually assaulted. So it was a group of us who, this was a moment for us to say no and put our feet down and mm -hmm. advocate for ourselves and it didn't work out, but just an opportunity for us to see more and more as we get older, how we can no longer hold this mantle of I have to I have to keep everybody safe or I have to keep the vibes. <laughs> yeah. You know? Do you think men encounter and I think I'm coupling this question with, with with the freaknet conversation, do you think that men encounter women romantically at all times? And what mm -hmm. I mean is I wonder if the delicate nature of women that is usually, and I'm using usually loosely because everybody has their own experience, but in my experience of dealing with women and dating women, it's been like a very delicate experience. Women are very like, can, can become like very docile in terms of like how to attract a man essentially, right? Like that whole like damsel in distress or that whole just like, you know, okay, that kind of thing, right? And I wonder if men are constantly encountering women from that vantage point, which then makes them feel like, and again, I'm not ignoring the fact that men just think women are inferior just in general, just how this life, but I'm just wondering if like, there's this extra layer of I can use my words to swindle her mm. into believing something, which is a very similar tactic that the guy used for the boat, but it's also a very similar, ta similar tactic that guys use to get women to have sex with them, to mm -hmm. get women to date them. The idea that, again, I can say something to this woman that will get her to, and honestly, vice versa happens. I remember growing up, I grew up in on the east and so like if a guy was fighting women was that his girlfriend or a girl was showing him their titties you ever seen it before like what? She, like if a guy was really aggressive like you know whatever she's like no 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 look at me look at like, come, like and that would wow. be a thing that women would do yeah wow. and mind you it was so normal it happened so much it happened so much because but mind you it would calm men down like, like right, and they would like, like come back, baby. and it was like wow. like girl and it was a thing and it was kind of normal. Like, it wasn't like a big deal. And honestly, until this very moment, I didn't even look at it as problematic. I kind of looked at it as like funny, maybe, or like, 
or just like a for sure way to get him to chill out. Like, mm. like, like, baby, come on, you know what I'm saying? And I think again, it becomes this question of at what point do we see people's humanity? And I think that to me centers most of the conversations that I have is your humanity outside of you being a number. You brought up earlier the whole idea of like we uh, civil rights and us being kind of like capital essentially, like, mm-hmm. and that being our experience throughout everything <laughs> time. Mm-hmm. But it's like. Before we are for sale, before we are for duty, before we are for work, before we are for amusement, there's a humanity that we have. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm just wondering, like, how do we give humanity back to people in general? But more specifically in this moment, how do we give the humanity of women back? And like, what is the call to action? We say this all the time, but like, I would like to see this to see things change, essentially. Right. Mm-hmm. And for us. I think our advocacy and our activism is our words. And so in this moment, I wonder, like, what are the expectations? What is the, even if it's euphoric, even if it's, like, delusional, what is the call to, for black men to be better as it relates to their 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 relationship with the women? Because even for myself as a black gay man, I tend to wonder, like, how do I disagree with, check, um... Even the idea of like how to how to get a woman to calm down. Mm-hmm. I was watching something and some guy said, "Calm down to a woman." And another woman said, "Don't call, don't tell the, don't tell the woman to calm down." Mm-hmm. But in my head, I'm like, well, "What well, what could he have said that would have been appropriate if he would have said like, you know, shh, don't shush no woman, or like, you know, hey, like bring it down." Don't, at what point can you? And I get that there's so much mm-hmm. trauma that's in there, right? But it's like, uh, like how does that happen? If at the heart of the question, if at the heart of the question is, do men see women as human beings and know how to treat them in that respect in my experience no and i don't always think it's a negative an intentionally negative thing but when i think about how young boys and young girls are raised young girls are raised to learn everything about a man oh don't no man gonna want you if you whatever whatever boys not gonna like that you gotta get yourself you don't stop boys to be like no young lady is going to want you if you blah, blah, blah. Like, it's just be a man, be a man, be a man. And you guys are taught to be a man, be a man, be a man. And we are taught to be worthy of a man that you guys aren't taught to learn us. You don't even really get to understand that um, we're able to receive your feelings as people. You think that we're reactionary. And I'm not just saying you specifically, of course. But, you know, uh, most men are thought to see women as these emotional beings that cannot think for themselves that are so ruled by their emotions that they're not capable of logic and therefore like the first step in that has to be seeing us as people who also have feelings but maybe they're different um who need to be asked questions who need to be um instead of going straight to like what can you say to calm a woman down the question should be what have I done to upset you this much to where I'm not able to connect with you anymore? The intention shouldn't even be to calm me down. I'm angry. I'm, what's the word that we like to use? Incense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I don't know. I think it's one of those complicated things. And at the heart, I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying, Sam. But I do, there's room still for people to abuse those spaces of safety, those spaces of grace. There's Mm. room for people who are not really interested in discourse and conversation. There are people who are not interested in progress Mm. and are interested in venting. Mm. And you gotta know the difference. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also know that in order to reach an equitable 
equitable space that has been historically inequitable, you have to take an inequitable approach mm -hmm. in favor of the person who has suffered from it. And so, and to answer the question of how do I get a black woman to calm down or like to be in conversation, sometimes you can't. And you know, and I don't know if the answer is you shouldn't even be trying to calm me down because that's inherently problematic. But the reality is, is you got to listen to understand. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I think it's, I think. It's unique to the person. It's unique to the person. And I think, again, back to humanity, right? Like people are individuals. Mm -hmm. And I think we tend to group people, mm -hmm. you know? And I think it just becomes tough to understand that in the midst of grouping, kind of you said, you said something. Um, I don't know if this is the episode that never happened or if this is episode one, <laughs> but you were saying like kind of like the golden rule of treating people how they want to be treated. And I think about that as like an initial thing, right? Like mm -hmm. before you know how I want to be treated, treat me how you want to be treated, right? Like mm -hmm. until you realize that this is how I want to be treated because mm -hmm. I might not want to be treated how you want to be treated. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So I think, you know what I'm saying? So yes, yeah, show me your baseline version of respect, but however, still take the time, like you said before, to like learn me and understand me and care enough to then do the work, to be fair, to understand how I would like to be treated. You may like, I, I, I don't like I, I don't like that, right? Mm -hmm. So in the beginning, you may have done that because you thought that was what I would want because you want it. But then once you learn, I think the missing step is, to your point, Sam, when we're talking about our development, likewise, so again, the practices that we're seeing at these, big, these larger events, I don't think men are really taught to base... Let me be, let me, let me be specific. No, I'm lying. I was going to say, I don't think that men are taught to base any other self-esteem on the, uh, on the heels or on the experience of women. But I don't think that's true because I think even in like grade school, you think about how many numbers you get at the mall and that being indicative. Well, then again, they ain't nothing to do with women. But like, you know, when you think about like that being indicative of self-esteem, right? Mm -hmm. But I think about even when we talk about sex, which is what we're talking about right now, like, I hear women talk about sex and being good, even if it's about hip hop music, which is also a part of the conversation. A lot of that is how they pleased a guy. Mm. It was like, I can make him, I can get him to, he won't want to, he, you know what I'm saying? But when you talk about guys and their version of having, you know, the power or good sex, I don't even know why I even hear guys talk about having good sex as much as some of the numbers in which they have women to have sex with them, right? Like I've gotten mm -hmm. this amount of women to have sex with me, whether it was good or not, who cares? I gave her the little, the little piece of dick I had, but you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like again, and I think again, it kind of goes back to the original point of like, what do you do? with both interactions me as a man who encountered other men we're talking about sexual assault in this in this conversation in college did i know men who sexually assaulted women yes did i pacify that to be in friendship with them yes mm. did i casually bring it up yes mm. was it explicit was it direct no mm. in the in the in the experience of or the transparency of why I think there was two reasons. One, I didn't. I think it would. I think it would have fallen on deaf ears, mm -hmm. right? Like you wouldn't mm -hmm. even like receive what you were saying, what you were doing, or me calling you out on what you were doing as a real thing. It would mm -hmm. have been like, boy, you tripping, ah, ah, whatever. Tickled with a little bit of like how I would be viewed if I was to call you out, right? Now I'm looking soft because I'm the one guy in the sea of seven guys trying to hold you accountable. And so now, even in this conversation now, some straight man might listen to this like, well, because he's gay. That's why he's kind of like being, you know, agreeable in this moment mm -hmm. or whatever. But I'm still a man. I don't want to say first, but I'm still a man. You know what I mean? And mm -hmm. I think it's like this is very interesting part about the fear that men have of other men, which mm -hmm. I think that we don't talk about enough. Like. We just don't. Mm 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, <laughs> you're absolutely right. I think until it becomes a priority for men to respect women, and I don't think that'll come until women really have power, and I don't mean power over them, I just mean power to make change, to support our lives, because when we think about this country, it was literally built to support rich white men and their ideals and their pockets. Um, until it's a priority for men to have respect for everyone, I think men are going to continue to base their behaviors off what's acceptable to other men, mm -hmm. what's acceptable and what is um, sexy to other men. So, um, yeah, yeah. So I do have a question as we close out on our Freak Nick talk. Okay. Do you guys feel like Freak Nick could happen today? Like, again, I need to know what Freak Nick was supposed to be. <laughs> Because if we're thinking about what Freaknik started as, yeah, sure. I mean, AGPs happen. I don't know what those are. You guys would. It's kind of similar, I guess. Packed downtown, like the packed central area. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Goodness. Say it again. Craziness. Yeah, craziness. Sex, all the things. Yeah, I think oh, it's okay. so similar. Well, yeah. I mean, I think it does happen. But as far as sex in the streets, like some of the images we're seeing circulating on Twitter, no, nah, I don't think. We didn't, nah, I don't think that could happen. I don't, and I don't think that's because it shouldn't. I just don't think there's any space that would support the public display of those things. Yeah, we're wired differently now. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And it's because, back to the top of the conversation, love how everything goes for circles, because niggas just had camcorders on their shoulder. They had eight MMM tapes. They was gonna have to go to the store and get it, uh, uh, Filmed, produced, whatever the hell, send it mm -hmm. in the mail. Mm -hmm. And now they can't do that, and everybody's going to be put out. So um, we sue people now. We sue people now. Mm -hmm. All right, well, give us a quick break, and we'll be right back. All right, guys, so uh, real quick, we're going to leave you with a small clip from Fem Time today and give a little bit of nuance around it. You've seen me talk about it on the Internet it'd be hard to come to the table and talk about all these things because as you just saw, our minds went so many different places just talking about Freak Nick. And we started this conversation, well, I gave you my maintenance check and it was that I was crying this morning. Um, well, I'm in a space with people I love, people I can have great conversation with and people who make me laugh. And so I wanted to share this clip explaining what it's like to do this type of content from day to day and then we'll give you some nuggets before we get out of here. You know? <laughs> Just like, I'm not even gonna hold you. Um, no, I mean, I just feel like I've had my experiences with negative masculine energy, and yeah. so I don't want to generalize masculine energy to be something negative, but masculine, masculine energy in its essence has to dominate a thing. Okay. It, it has to be in control of it, whereas a feminine energy knows how to surrender to a thing, not necessarily submit, yeah. but surrender to a thing and allow feelings to pass. And I think that's, that's something that regardless of gender, regardless of biology, everybody has to work through, especially black women. We're going to talk about that a little later today, um, how we embrace that side of us. But yeah, like it's, there's, there's nothing, at least in this feminine space that I'm trying to create, there's nothing proud. There's mm -hmm. nothing egotistical about the moment. There is nothing that desires to be 
a head of directive, like leading. It's it's collaborative, you know. Okay. Mm -hmm. I like that. Mm -hmm. Me too. I like that. Me okay, too. let's get into it then. So what are we about to talk about today? What you want to talk about? So, um, let me see. Let me see here. Do, 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 do. Oh, wait. Before we get into what you want to talk about, one more thing. Okay. What do you want the people to gain? From this experience? From this experience. <laughs> what you want them to, you want them I, to leave with? I just, I, so this is a part of something new, a part of the whole Patreon that's la launching new. And one of the biggest goals of the platform itself is to engage in filling the cup. You know, there is, there is so much that we carry. There is so much that we constantly affirm and encourage one, another's to, one another to not necessarily persist, persist or be resilient, but to continue. You okay. know what I'm saying? And there's another side of that that needs to tend to all the other parts of you. And so that's what I want people to gain from this experience. I want them to see themselves. I want them to be able to identify and relate and be able to, to put something on on a Monday on a lunch break or when they get home from work that is just I don't want to say light because it's not always going to be light because I cried at one point. Yeah. <laughs> I cried at one point in that, um, in that first night we did this. But I just want them to have something that brings them a little bit of peace, you yeah. know? Mm -hmm. It makes them feel like familiar because I think mm -hmm. a lot of these conversations that we're having is really important in general. Like, mm -hmm. I think there's multiple sides to a story. For example, like parking lot pimping, I think that something that you do that's really amazing that people really love is that you are, you kind of are putting, you're putting down a man. Essentially, you're, you're being an activist and fighting the power. But when there's not, when it's not, it's not always about combat, being combative. It's not mm -hmm. always about fighting. Sometimes it's about like having moments to understand. And I think that's one of the things I really like about what you said about what mm -hmm. you want to get from FemTime is having that opportunity to collaborate and kind of brainstorm about mm -hmm. what it is that we can do in order to, after we've made our demands, what can we do to work together mm -hmm. to make these things work mm -hmm. and not only work together to make it work but to have an understanding because yeah. sometimes I think that's really mm -hmm. a lot of the work mm -hmm. it's like to understand really it's, yeah we just want to be understood yeah and are you listening to me <laughs> you know what Angelica Ross said something that spoke to my soul and, and it's interesting because I think what I saw, the same person said, Angelica Ross just dropped, dropped the gym. Angelica Ross was in Pose. I love her. Yeah, she's fantastic. <laughs> I think she does music now. And she's beautiful too, but I love yeah. her. Um, but she was talking about, she's a trans woman, and she was talking about how her mother might have disowned her at the time. Mm -hmm. And as she talked about it, she paused to say that I can talk about this with a smile because my mom right now is at home in my bed, at my house. She's been there for like seven days. Mm -hmm. So I can talk about this with a smile because I know the end is coming. Mm -hmm. And it was so beautiful because she was essentially saying, yes, I'm talking about something rough, but I know there is a brighter end to this story. And she said, we have to approach life like that because even though we might not know exactly what the end is going to be, no matter how long seasons last, they are seasons. And joy does come in the morning. I just... I just <laughs> Hallelujah. Uh, I just added that But um, yeah, and so I think that is how I feel about it. I don't know that you can encapsulate encapsulate an hour and 30 minutes of conversation of, oh, we went through the good and we went through the bad. We <laughs> had a great time and we were sad. 
it might not look like that every time we come yeah. to sit down here. Our days don't look like that. Our weeks don't look like that. But I will say that I know because I'm black. I know because I'm black. There's going to be joy. Like we specialize in joy. Mm. We specialize in joy. Mm. And our experience is laughing to keep from crying. And while these things from the outside looking in may seem like coping mechanisms, yeah, yeah. And what? Yes, the fuck. I have to cope to be here to exist. Everybody should have to cope to be in America now today. The things we see in a news cycle every day affecting all kinds of groups of people. But I know there's going to be joy in the morning light. And I'm waiting on, I'm just waiting on my opportunity to smile. Mm. Mm. That was beautiful, friend. I um, am looking forward to seeing, um, and I encourage that when this documentary does come out, um, as more people begin to have conversation on social media about Freaknik or any of the things connected to it, um, use social media as your place to speak about these things because there's somebody on the other side waiting to have a conversation with you. Um, the auntie who came up and said, Jesus be a fence of privacy, mm -hmm. a very tall fence mm -hmm. of privacy. Um, that's a real feeling and that's a real thing. And I appreciate that social media does allow us to be more human than we were able to be in the past. Um, you don't need to have a whole ring light or a fancy camera. Get up and talk about the thing that's on your heart and know that somebody will see you. So that gives me a little bit of peace. I feel like when it comes to like balancing the heavy and the, the reality that you have to still exist in this world, I feel like it's, it's, it's interesting from my perspective because humanity is a big part of my existence. I mean, all of us, right? But it's like the the pursuit of a better community than I left it, or or leaving a better community than I than I encountered it, is big for me. So I have to kind of sit in those moments. I have to kind of get that in my body. Now I don't really keep up with the like local whatever. That, that doesn't that's not really my thing, but. In terms of like people's personal experience, you know, I had the luxury of like being able to talk to people and all the things. And I think for me, it's like having to like not necessarily compartmentalize, but having to understand kind of to your point. Similarly, like this is a journey and there's ebbs and flows and there's good days and bad days. There's good moments and bad moments. And there's always something. Tracy Ellis Ross said something along the lines of she was on set and I think her stepfather or something had just passed. And she had this shoot for uh, blackish. And she was like, one part of me is grieving, but I, I'm going to bring the, the part of me that is good. Mm. And that stuck with me because I think about how, like, even for myself, in, in, in my perspective and in my life, there's always something good in my spirit that I can bring to the space. You know what I mean? And I think I didn't always realize it as that because I was, you know, that language, mm -hmm. you know. But I think even in the midst of me grieving, grieving, even in the midst of doubt in the midst of lack of faith there was some still voice in the back of my, my, of my mind that knew i would be okay mm -hmm. even in the midst of me having doubts and you guys know one of my major doubts in, the, in this season of my life right now but you know mm -hmm. even in the midst of that there's some piece of hope in the bottom of my belly um six pack if you will is on the way um <laughs> that says you're gonna be okay mm -hmm. and, I, and i encourage in, in, in the spirit of encouragement i encourage anybody to remind yourself that like you really are going to be okay and not because you're so amazing but because god said you would mm -hmm. um for those who believe and i think for me i know 
God's promise. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And then, so even in the midst of me, and I said this before, and I'll shut up after this, like I truly want what God wants for me. Mm-hmm. Whether it's what I want or not, I truly, now again, I'm not saying I'm gonna do it with a smile every time. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what life is about, right? We A lot of these things are tied to our goals. Every piece of the pot that gets you to your goal is not something that you love. You may want to be a social media, blah, blah, but you don't want to edit. You don't want to wake up early. You don't want to hop on flight after flight. You don't want to you don't want to be berated on social media, all these things you don't want. But they're also stepping stones to getting you to where you want to be. Right. And likewise to God's promise. Like everything that God said for me that's going to happen ain't going to be pretty. But I know when I get to that joy that comes tomorrow, when I get to that end, when I get to that moment, I know that this is going to also work for my good. Mm-hmm. And I ain't coming to preach in this moment, but it sounds like it. But like mm-hmm. it's really going to work for my good. And I think even and for myself, I guess I said I was lying. I'm not going to shut up. But like <laughs> in the midst of like for me, I trust my process. And this is this is how it's been a big thing for me with money because I'm an entrepreneur and I you know work for myself. And so like. For some reason, I've always known God to supply mm-hmm. in my life. I don't, child, listen to me. Amen. The, I don't know where I'm going to be coming from, <laughs> but I'm talking mm-hmm. about literally in the in late in the midnight hour. He gonna turn it. I'm talking mm-hmm. about like I literally have been like, okay, well, my rent, not my rent, mortgage, but whatever. M- my domicile, <laughs> where I live, needs to be paid for God. And it's on the first. <laughs> it's the thirtieth. <laughs> Ain't no funds. But for some yeah. reason, my spirit. Lene, want to grab food? Yes, I do. And some call it negligence. I know. I call it trusting <laughs> because I'm telling you, I know for a fact somebody owe me something. Something's going to transpire, and it's going to work in my favor. I think we have to remind ourselves of our pride. What has God done for you, yeah. and why would He stop? Oh, right. Amen. That That's was it. that was. That's where I'm at with it. Mm-hmm. And you got to stay there, man. I hope everybody. I hope you just get there and, and not stay there because it's, it's unrealistic. I hope you interact with that as often as possible. The idea that God has had you. Mm-hmm. Why would He stop? Mm-hmm. And name somebody better. Mm. <laughs> All right. See y'all next week. <laughs> not by a mug. All right. A <laughs> Is there a heart in a house tonight? Stand up. Stand up. Stand up. <laughs> this is this far for me. <laughs> okay.